Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Professor Steve Keen. He is an economist and an author. Uh, and somebody, I actually read your first book. We said this before we came on debunking economics, before I ever started pos- podcasting and really enjoyed it. Uh, mm-hmm. I've now read, read another book of yours, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? Uh, so, Steve, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Welcome. It's nice I have such a well-backgrounded podcaster. Right. So, and you're coming at us from from Thailand, although you're originally from Australia, and you've spent time in England and and Holland, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I was uh, in Australia until I was uh, actually 61. I left Australia in 2014 to take a position at Kingston University in London, and that lasted about four years with a, a checkered history in various ways. Uh, and in the meantime, I also bought a flat in in Amsterdam. Uh, and then when the COVID crisis hit, I had a choice of four countries, effectively, because my wife is Thai. And uh, when I was watching how badly the numbers are doing back in March of 2020, I said, we're getting the F out of here. Uh, and we landed in Thailand. And that's where we're now making our base. Right, right. Mm. And then enjoying the weather. We're, we're just getting a little Indian summer here in England. So we're getting a little bit of heat. Uh, if you can have enjoying. half our summer and still have summer on your terms, it's, it's 37 degrees here today wow man yeah yeah mm. yeah that is hot good so uh, I, as i was saying you know i read the, the the debunking economics book and it sort of opened me up to i suppose because i'm i'm definitely a layman when it comes to economics but even the, the the sort of basic understanding of economics i had was was certainly challenged by that book so i mm. wonder if we should start there and then we can you know move on to this question about are we going to have another financial crisis um so what is there to, de- to debunk about economics, like, to, to start well, off with? Virtu- virtually everything. Uh, and, like, I, I do a fair bit of that in debunking economics. My next book, uh, The New Economics of Manifesto, I carries it further while also pushing for an alternative approach. But if, my fundamental picture of neoclassical economics, it's the same in, as, as Ptolemaic astronomy. It has a, a model of the system it's supposed to be describing, which fits the data and is completely wrong. Uh, okay. And that's the same sense the Ptolemaic model, you know, they, with, with enough epicycles and equants and, uh, and so on, uh, you, 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 could, you could fit the data on the movement of the planets and, and you know, happily predict in the future and, and backcast as well. But you had a model which is structurally completely wrong about the nature of the solar system, let alone the universe. And economics is similar. It has a supply and demand equilibrium barter model of the economy, which uh, with enough tweaking of the parameters for a very complicated model, you can make it fit the data until there's a major change in trends, uh, if those trends are caused by factors you don't consider. And, of course, the financial crisis was the first of those. Um, so when you look at the actual detail, their empirical um, their, their theory is empirically contradicted when you go take a look at the uh, how actual firms behave, how actual markets behave, how the finance system works and so on. It empirically completely contradicts their views. Uh, and then internally, theoretically, uh, they reached a large number of logical conundrums, and they did what uh, I once had a physicist explain to me as the can opener assumption. Let's assume we have a can opener, and you jump neatly sideways from a logical conundrum and keep on going, and then you don't bother telling the little kids about that in the textbooks. That happens dead buried deep down in the journals, and if you get a superficial education like most people do from textbooks, you think it's all very sound, but in fact, you couldn't have a more loose than misleading model of capitalism if you tried. Right. Okay. With the possible exception of extreme Marxism. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, sort of bringing it to the to the layperson's perspective, what other things do you think that 
that economists tend to assume about how we operate as human mm. beings in an economy that they get wrong. That they, well, for, they a start, for, a start, for a start, they assume banks and money and debt don't exist. Right. And they know they do, but they say, well, they're peripheral elements. You can leave them out. Uh, I had an exchange with a, 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 a neoclassical that I've come to have a reasonable relationship with uh, on, on Twitter. Um, Tony, I can't think of his last name right now. Uh, but he came up with a piece saying, we should teach people models, first of all, that don't have banks or money or debt in them. And then we bring in money and debt later to, uh, to show how they cause frictions, add frictions to the system. Um, from my point of view, capitalism is fundamentally a monetary system. And if you try to model it without money, you're modeling a fiction. Right. That's the first but, one. Yeah. yeah. But just, well, just, we, uh, just, just a quick question on that one. So mm-hmm. why is it they think they can exclude banks and, and money? Why do they think they can take care? Well, they, they make a little analogy between individuals. So imagine if, uh, you know, if Richard uh, lent Steve a thousand pounds, uh, then Richard's spending power goes down by a thousand and Steve's goes up by a thousand. Richard can spend less, Steve can spend more than the two cancel out. That's the sort of logic they use. They don't bother then investigating uh, what banks actually do. And, and you, you would actually have seen in 2014, the Bank of England came out and said, banks do not lend out deposits. Okay. Categorically, they do not do that. What they do is they create new debt and they create deposits at the same time. Now, when you follow through the logic of that in terms of what that means, the amount of demand in the economy, you find that credit, which is the extension of new debt, which would have no impact in the aggregate if you lent me a thousand or I lent you a thousand. When a bank create, lends a thousand, it creates an asset for itself worth a thousand and a liability, which is your deposit, also worth a thousand. And you, you don't borrow for the sheer pleasure of being in debt. So you spend that credit and that yeah. adds to aggregate demand. So what they're leaving out is, is an enormous segment of aggregate demand. And uh, in the case of the American economy, which is the one that I know empirically best, uh, in 2015, credit was 15% of aggregate, equivalent to 15% of GDP. So the increase in private debt, which caused an identical increase in private money in America in 2007, was 15% of GDP. Now, 2009, it was minus 5%. And that's like a 20% of GDP swing from boom to bust in the American economy. And they left that out of their models, which is why they thought 2008 was going to be a cracker of a year. Right. Okay. So I, I so I, I heard what you said, but just to just to pace through this really slowly so people get it. So in mm, the, in the mm. first scenario, the way that they assume it works is, you know, I lend you some money. Yep. That gives me less money to spend, uh, but you've got more money to spend. Yep. But in reality, we've got a bank in the middle. Um, and so, yeah, just take Not it even in the middle. The- no, you're on the sidelines. <laughs> uh, the idea is the saver. What the, the, you have the saver lends to the borrower is the model that they have where the saver's a non-bank and the, lend- the borrower's a non-bank. But the real world, the saver's irrelevant. The saver money melts up and the saver's account through the dynamics between the bank and the borrower. But the bank creates the $1,000 in debt and creates additional money. So lending creates money, which is not in their model. And then secondly, you spend that money, which is also not in their model. So consequently, they're ignoring, as I said, in America's case in 2007, something which is contributing plus 15% of demand, and then it was minus 5% of GDP worth of demand. Right. So it's not like, as you say, so it's not as if I give, Richard gives Steve a thousand pounds of my money. No, as Mm. a saver, it's the bank creates this money. 
Yep. Uh, and so it's, it's not only creating more money for the system, it's also giving you money to spend, which you mm-hmm. also spend in the system, right? So that is, that's, that, right. that's the big thing they're missing out. That's the big thing they're missing out in banking. <laughs> you can find in a bank- similar big thing <laughs> in virtually every other area of the theory. Wow. Okay. Well, what's the, what, so, okay. So that, that's straight in my mind now. And I hope it is for some of the listeners here. So then, mm. so, so that's a, a huge part of it. They miss out. And of course, when you've got, if you include that in your model, and as you've just said, if there's big movements in what the banks are doing, mm. credit, as you say, you know, to the extent to which they're, they're giving loans out to people, yeah. then, then that can cause a, a shift in the economy, which they're just missing. Yeah, that's right. And that's why they didn't see the financial crisis coming. Yeah. Okay. So what's, an, what's another big one then? So they're missing out the banks. And- uh, then this is one which is quite might quite sound strange, but I'm, I'm going to edit the third third edition of debunking economics, which I'll hopefully start on early next year uh, to start this. And this is the theory of supply. So they have the idea of an upward sloping supply curve, and the and and that that's like if you imagine if if you draw two intersecting lines, you're pretty much summarised mainstream economics. Everybody thinks you know supply and demand, and the supply curve slopes up. Uh, when you empirically ask firms what actually happens to their costs of supply, you find it, if anything, it slopes down. Okay. So and what does even... that mean in real terms? So what does a supply curve going up mean and what does a supply curve going down mean? Well, what, what, what the supply curve going up means is, is that there's a, a natural dynamic that stops demand movements benefiting. If you have an increase in demand, you have an increase in price as well. So price operates to dampen demand in that sense. Uh, and equally, a firm that tries to expand too much will have higher costs and will then be pulled back towards its competitors. What you find is that for the not, at least 90% of firms, when research has been done into this, between 89 and 95% of firms have said what are called their marginal costs, the cost of producing yeah. in the next unit, falls right out to capacity production. Now, if you're an engineer, you probably know that. You work with the firm, you know, yeah. that, you know, most efficient scale of operation is of virtually 100% of the factory. Uh, but economists think it gets less efficient as you use it more because they think if you've designed it in such a way that you're always using it past its ideal position and therefore literally workers are bumping into each other and being in, unproductive. And that's why you have <laughs> d- diminishing what they call diminishing marginal productivity. Now, frankly, it's an insult to, to, to corporations to say that that badly managed and that badly designed. But what it means is, for example, if you have a car, a car, a car company uh, that gets a hold of a larger share of the market, uh, what happens is as well as having a larger share of the market, it also has a larger profit margin because it's got further past its break-even point. Its costs are falling. So you get this dynamic that it manages to cause major corporations to come about, which is why you get things like Amazon yeah. and Tesla, et cetera, et cetera. Once they get, uh, you know, economies of scale uh, command of the economy, they become dominant in a marketplace. Now, you've still got a spectrum of firms that can exist from small to large in any particular industry. Uh, But therefore, the the, the idea that their idea idea of an ideal market is lots and lots of small firms. Now, you go looking for where in the world does that market exist, and the answer is nowhere. Right. What we tend to have is very large corporations. Uh, and then a spectrum down to the small and most industries. And it's, it's this dynamic that enables a big firm to become dominant that gives you the actual structure of capitalism. And that's also partly where the dynamic comes from, because if you are, for example, let's say you're a little company, software company called Microsoft, 
uh, and you can see this big uh, technology company called IBM, uh, then you can see the potential to innovate and get past them. And if you succeed in that, then ultimately the scales are reversed. Uh, and and that, that's the real nature of capitalist competition. And, and that sort of thing is what we should be looking at. And it's completely left out by all this nonsense about marginal cost and marginal revenue, which is what the textbooks go on about. So they misdescribe the real world. Uh, their theory of trade is wrong. Uh, the uh, the trade companies that the countries that do best tends to have a, di- a diversified industrial structure, not a specialized one, so on and so forth. So everything they tell us to do, the best thing about is take their advice and do the opposite. Right. Okay. Well, there's a couple more points there. So so the first one was that they they assume that as firms get bigger and bigger, they actually become less efficient. Whereas in reality, let's take is the Amazon example, they get more efficient. Well, they had the cost cost structure works in their favour. Uh, whereas works. they think the cost structure works against them. Um, right. Like I've I actually saw uh, Tesla, not Tesla, but uh, the the uh, household electronics uh, energy side of Tesla, the house roof tiles. Yeah, the, and they yeah, reported the they reported that they their costs were higher because of lower volume production than they expected. Now that's the exact opposite of what a textbook would tell you. They say, well, the costs are going to be lower with lower volume because you've got uh, you're further down the supply curve. Uh, no, in fact, it's the other way around. So uh, they're, they're, it, it's an incredibly intricate theory. And one reason they defend it so vigorously is that if you, if you it's just like a house of cards, pull any card you know, out and pretty likely the whole, whole house is going to collapse. So they defend all these various elements of it, all of which are erroneous. But if you let any one of them go, then the whole thing falls over. Right. Same thing in the stock market. They have what are called the efficient markets hypothesis. You know, and if you think, oh, that soccer market's efficient, they also abuse the language, by the way. So what they mean by efficient isn't, you know, trades happening really rapidly. It's saying trades are based on all available information, uh, including, uh, uh, you know, into the distant future. And as part of their theory, we assume, they assume we all know what's going to happen with share prices over time. That's part of the theory. Uh, and right. they don't tell anybody that until it all goes horribly wrong. Um, right. But, but this sort of nonsense is, is at the foundations. And I'd rather say wipe the whole lot away and let's start again with realistic foundations for economics. And that's right. what I'm trying to do. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, all right. So, so, I, so okay, so I'm, I'm understanding some, some of the fundamentals there of the flaws in their model. And as you said, the, mm. the, well, the, the, spe- the idea of specialising as a country is sort of part of the foundation of globalism is, right? We like the, the yeah. countries that are good at particular things do their thing and then we trade. But, that, but also that's, that's flawed. Yeah, I mean, if you, there's actually a, one of my favourite uh, resources not put together by economists. There is a couple of economists involved, but it's mainly statisticians and computer programmers called the Atlas of Economic Complexity. And that's very much empirically based on it's it's derived from the SITC database, the standard industrial trade classification database. And look at what countries export, what they import. And that's that's the most detailed information we have about the industrial structures, what the export and import structure is of each economy. And when they analyze that data, they find that countries that are at the top of their complexity scale. Uh, are ones that produce not not just the you know isn't it just if you make nuclear reactors and you make uh, you know, solar cars but you don't make nails you make the entire spectrum industrial spectrum so specialization tends to be a failing strategy not a successful one and they say well, it is a rich diversified industrial structure 
And that's the opposite of what we've done with globalization, of course. Right. I mean, and that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you could really understand why people wouldn't want to build models that, that didn't include that as an assumption. Mm. Yeah. Because so, the, yeah. So the, it's, it's just, I mean, it, it gets to the point where people often say, well, surely you've got something you've got to hang on to. And my answer is, what did Galileo and Copernicus keep of Ptolemy's theory? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, is it worth just d- dwelling a little bit, and we'll definitely get onto what what a better model would look like. But yeah. what do you think the major multi- motivations are for keeping this in place? Then um, it's it, it's twofold. I mean, people often just say, "Well, it suits the capitalist class to have this thing there as an excuse," and that that explains why it might be something that a a, a, a wealthy entrepreneur, like for example Rockefeller. Uh, might pay for a university, like, for example, the University of Chicago, because that promotes the views that, you know, defend his class interests. But it doesn't explain why the economists themselves do it. And what I think, and I'm just speaking as somebody who fell for this stuff in high school and then was broken out of it in first year university, but still swallowed the theories and accurate description, it actually is a description of a utopia. And humans seem to be very, very seduced by the notion of some utopia. So in the, in the, in the neoclassical utopia, there's no government. We don't need a government. That government makes things worse. So there's no central control. Okay? It's everything is diversified. There's no power. And you get paid what you deserve, your marginal product. Right. Now, that is a very seductive vision of a perfect society. Uh, and... I, I remember having one little uh, event where uh, I, I organised a seminar between workers and management in the food industry in Australia and had one of the ch- chief people in the what was then called the industry's uh, uh, IAC was its name back. It's now called the Productivity Commission. And he was attacked by both sides and then afterwards pulled me over for a drink and said, look, you're an economist, help me convert these people. Hmm. Now, in, in a real sense, they behave as religious sellers. And, and, and they were, of course, going to be totally offended by me saying that, and they would be offended, wouldn't they? Uh, but that's what I find. They, they are almost impervious to the real data. And the, the terrible thing about that is, and we'll talk about this at some point, I'm sure, is that th- that therefore gives them a vision of capitalism which can cope with any challenge that might be thrown at it. They see it as ultimately stable, flexible, can handle anything. And that's, therefore, climate change can't be a bad problem. Right, because the market yeah. will... Uh... Yeah, well, therefore, yeah. it can't be so severe the market can't solve it, therefore, it's trivial. Uh, and, and, and that's a, the only way that I can explain the nonsense that I've seen them do on climate change, which is about to be proved far, far worse than if I get to see the financial crisis coming. Right, right. Well, yeah, well, don't, well let's, uh, let's pin that one because that's, that's definitely mm. worth coming back to. Um, well, and I wonder whether to go now just to talk, up, to talk about, because what I love in, in this book, the um, can we avoid another financial crisis? crisis mm. is your analysis of the of, the, of these zombie economies and, yeah. and and what might actually predict a crisis um well yes so, so i wonder i wonder if we should talk about you know what what is it about the current model that means that we've missed these financial crises which i know you touched on and then yeah. what a, a new model of economics would look like that would allow us to predict these these issues ahead of time yeah well the main thing is looking at the level of private debt and credit so private yeah. debt is the actual, actual dollars outstanding and credit is the, the new debt issued every year. And those are the two f- fundamental indicators that I'd add to the arsenal, such as it is, of central banks and treasuries saying, watch out for too much credit-based demand and too high level of private debt. 
because if you get too dependent on credit as a source of demand, and as I said, credit is part of aggregate demand and aggregate income in the way that I analyse the economy, uh, if you let that get too big, then when it slows down, it's going to cause a huge shock to your economy. Now, the, I gave you the example of America going from plus 15 yeah. to minus 5, but the worst was actually Spain, which went from pretty much plus 40 to minus 20. Right. Okay. But, okay. And, and that this, this, England had a not as bad a, bad a, a fall. The countries that, I, that said it looked like they survived the financial crisis were ones that stopped credit going negative. That includes Australia and Canada, for example. Right. So they kept their housing bubbles going and they kept the credit rolling as well. Um, so absolutely, I'd add those two uh, essential elements uh, to the indicators. And then what the main thing I would say is, well, what we call the golden age of capitalism was the 50s, 50s 60s and early 70s. And at that time, the level of private debt in America, for example, was of the order of about 60 to 80% of GDP. It's now 160 to 180% of GDP. So that's a good reason to try to get the level of debt, of private debt, down by 100% of GDP, which is one of the proposals I make uh, in, in my new book, as well as in the uh, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? But absolutely the most important indicators are the level of private debt, the rate of change of that, which is credit, and the rate of change of credit as well, those three together uh, can let you know whether a crisis is likely or not. Right. So if you've got, if you've got a population that's loaded up with debt uh, and then you've got a sudden deceleration at the rate at which banks are, um, are lending people new money, that's when you're most likely to get a crisis. Uh, you, we had a freeze just then, by the way, Richard. Are you, you, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, um, so, you, so when you've got the population <laughs> loaded up with debt, and that, mm. that, inc- that includes corporations, does it, or just yeah, health? it does. I mean, yeah. would, would it help if I? I mean, we might have to pause the pause the recording for a sec. Would it help if I brought up some data to show you that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, because I've got a program. Uh, I've done one I'm uh, I'm designing called Ravel that uh, is a a database system. It's a, it's a database system uh, as well as the. Um, um, my modeling program and it's going to look a bit uh, overwhelming. I've got, for some reason, I've, I've chosen the USA and Finland. I'll just actually simplify the screen a bit. Just give me a second and then I'll sure. be ready to roll. This first graph here is the level of, is the ratio of private debt to GDP in America going back to 49. You can see it was down below 60%. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. And then it was rose all the way through the 60s, 70s, 80s. And then that was the financial crisis, that dip there. Yeah. When you take a look down here, his private credit at 15% of GDP in roughly 2006, down to minus 5% in 2009 or thereabouts. And that's uh, the United States. Now, if we look at uh, the UK, okay, similar sort yeah. of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, some countries don't quite have it. Turkey had its crisis. You can see they're in crisis now. You can see the plunge in credit for Turkey in the most recent yeah. years. We're still working on the graphs here, by the way, so that's um, sure. they're, not, they're not, not the world's best, but they'll have to do. There's Thailand, which is where I am now with the Asian financial crisis, obviously turning yeah. up there, peak level of private debt, plunge in private debt after that. Uh, I think the next one's going to be Spain. That's our Switzerland's. Well, Switzerland's always a bit strange, as we know. Uh, <laughs> Sweden, crisis back in the 80s, and now it's, it's, it's Spain is the most remarkable one. So there's a plunge from well over 30% of GDP to about minus 20% of GDP, and that's why Spain had such a hard crash 
in the yeah. uh, in the financial crisis. So it's a global phenomenon. It's really easy to find find it because the data is now this is taking data from the Bank of International Settlements and it has data on forty three countries using standard reporting levels around the world. So I've got the data. It's it's uh, and if you let's, let's take a look at one more country. Let's actually take a look at Japan here because of course that was the first country to have. Uh, a crisis. Now, if it looked at what happened with Japan, there's the same story. High, high level of private debt. It then plunges, bounces around a fair bit, increasing now under the influence of COVID. But you had credit going from about 28% of GDP there to about minus 15% here. So it's, no. it's, it's a common theme. The data is there. Um, it's easy to find. What you simply need is a model that can cope with it. Neoclassical economics simply can't integrate that issue into its its thinking. So the only way to understand debt is to stop understanding neoclassical economics. Right. And and build up a model again, but with this uh with this accounted for. And and what other factors it so we're in we're in this new model, we're including the the levels of of private debt, both mm-hmm. by households and corporations, where we're including the rate at which banks are lending new money each year. What else are we included in the in this new model? From an engineering point of view, this might, uh, might make a, a lot of sense to you. We're including non, non-linear dynamics and disequilibrium behaviour. Right. Uh, and, and if you go back to the 1870s when mainstream economics, neoclassical economics became dominant in the mid-1870s, uh, the people who were responsible then, William Jevons, Carl uh, 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 Menger and Leon Walras, they used equilibrium modelling because they knew that was all they could handle. They didn't know any mathematics of dynamic systems. And they literally said, it's a, basically, they said it's a stopgap. We know we should be using dynamics, but that's too complicated. So let's use the equilibrium stuff because it's, we should, uh, you know, use it because we can do it. Okay. Um, well, by the 20th century, uh, first of all, the whole lot of logical conundrums in that equilibrium thinking, um, and they failed to prove the stability of you know, multi-commodity markets and so on and so forth. But in the 20th century, that became a hallmark of the good thing about capitalism uh, in mainstream economics. They this idea of Pareto optimality, for example, which says that, uh, you know, that that's a situation where you cannot not, not make anybody else better off without making somebody else worse off. Uh, and it, all this stuff involves some sort of concept of equilibrium. Now, the last thing which capitalism is distinguished by is the equilibrium, never at rest, always changing. And its most interesting elements are what happens because it's out of equilibrium, far from equilibrium. We have the mathematics for that these days. You know it. You've done systems of differential yeah. equations. Yeah, yeah. Engineers have been using it for, what, 70, 80, 90 years, um, using it in software for 60 years. Uh, but economists have locked that out of their thinking. So that would be inside there as well. And you then look at the non-equilibrium behavior, which is the main behavior of the system. And the other thing you'd include is energy. Right. Because mainstream economics has a model of production in which you put workers and machines inside a factory and goods will come out the other end with no need to input uh, energy at all. Now, my little contribution on that was, uh, was a lot of my workers, how do we put this insights into mathematical form? And one of them was that uh, what, what neoclassicals would do would say, well, labor is a factor of production and capital is a factor, and we can make energy a factor as well. And they weight those factors by the income shares they get. So they put a roughly a 65% share on labor, a 30% share on 
machinery and a 5% sure in energy because that's roughly the income distribution uh, in, in, in um, the national accounts, which means energy plays a trivial role. Now, my little insight, I was, was uh, walking through a friend's house who's working in the same area as me some years ago, full of statues, and I suddenly thought, labour without energy is a corpse. Capital without energy is a sculpture. So you've got to make energy arguments into your labour and capital to explain how production is generated. And once you have that as well, you've also got the laws of thermodynamics turning up. You can't turn all that energy into useful work. There has to be some waste. So in, right. in a fundamental way, you unify your analysis of economics with the ecology and admit that waste is a necessary element of production. Right. And therefore, of course, that waste can come back and constrain your productivity. Uh, so all this sort of stuff, which is actually what with limits growth was working on, which economists trashed uh, without understanding it, that, that physical realism would be an essential part of economics. And therefore, you would have been thinking 50, 60, 70 years ago or more, what are the physical constraints for the production system which we have? And now we're finding out what they are because neoclassical economists said there were none. Right. Well, now it's interesting, back to your earlier point about how the neoclassical economics have created a utopia mm. that, you know, that doesn't, that believes that things are in, that the system's in equilibrium, that doesn't account mm. for the fact that we're wasteful with energy, right? So there's lots of, as you say, aspects uh, of the real world which you're incorporating into this view. Yeah. And, uh, and we, we, we desperately need realistic economics because we've got fantasy economics right now. And like you mentioned that cartoon book I wrote, which, do we mention that on screen or before we got to... I think, yeah, no, I think on, on, on screen, but you, and you've also got it live on ArcTune's platform, right? Yeah. That's right, uh, Arkhaven. Yeah, so if you Arc go to yeah, Arkhaven, you'll, you'll find my, yeah. my cartoons there. And really, the, the, the thing which really, really annoys me is that neoclassical economists are seen as hard-nosed, realist. Um, they're, they're, the, they're, they're the, the, the serious people, and people challenging them, they're the radicals, you know, heads in the cloud, that sort of stuff. The way I wrote those satires is it's the other way around. Neoclassical live in a fantasy world where you can have output without, in, without inputs, you know, output without energy and material from the real world, uh, where banks are, 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 are like Maxwell's demon that doesn't actually interact with the system it's changing, that Maxwell demons actually exist. That's the stock market in some ways. They live in a fantasy world. And the trouble is that when you've, when, with the fantasy, comes across as an ide ideological defense of capitalism as well. And it defends it for things which aren't at all characteristic of capitalism. But it, mm. it worked as an anti-trade union and worked as an anti-Soviet thing when it was being done. But if you then build your, your, your management of your, the real world on this fantasy model, you're going to have a crisis all the time and they're going to come along the un, unexpected, unprepared, and much more devastating than they would be if you were prepared for them and even possible that you'd, you'd have policies in place to stop these crises elements turning up in the first place. Uh, so capitalism would work a lot better without economists. <laughs> right, or at least without fantasy economists. Hmm. Yeah, and you say in the book as well that even in this new understanding, you'd, you would still expect there to be ups and downs, right? Hmm. Yeah. But that you would have a way to understand whether you were when you were heading for a crisis. Yeah, well, you, you would, as you said, the, you can't stop capitalism being cyclical. If you stop any system from being cyclical, the best way to do that is to kill it and chuck it in a, in a freezer, okay? Um, because, you know, you, you, we all have rhythms. There's, we're never in yeah. equilibrium. We're going through circadian rhythms and all the various 
rhythms of life and in systems that are inherently cyclical. But they try to explain cycles as due to exogenous shocks. And if you didn't have the shocks, you'd be in permanent equilibrium. And that's not even like the thermodynamic equilibrium of you know, statistical mechanics, where you've got you know, billions and trillions of molecules bouncing into each other. So nothing is at rest, but the overall aggregate of the system is a thermodynamic equilibrium. Nothing that sophisticated. Um, so we, we really need to acknowledge the cyclical nature of capitalism. And the cycles can largely come out of competition over the distribution of income, which we'll always have with us. So, but what you can do is stop that being amplified by financial shenanigans, uh, where you have the financial sector regularly falling into Ponzi schemes. And you could also right. stop the financial sector funding asset bubbles and, you know, require, if you're going to get a banking license, that is a, a privilege, which is given to you by the state. You can't just open up a bank like you can open up a, a corner shop. You've got to get, you know, regulatory approval. With that approval would come responsible lending. And responsible lending means lending to capitalists for investment, for working capital, not lending to Ponzi schemers for asset bubble inflation, and which is what they fundamentally do these days. Right, right. And there's a couple of things that you said, that, well, there's something you said there about how neoclassical economics um, assume that you're only going to have a crisis with this exogenous shock, you see, so yeah. something from the outside hits you. So we've mm. got this system that's in equilibrium until something from outside hits it rather than accepting that there's uncertainty and complexity within the system that is inherently yeah. going to give you these, as you say, cyclical uh, ups and downs, which, yeah, that makes inherently just makes much more sense. And, and it's now easier to model that sort of thing. I mean, it was very difficult to do that. You know, when, when Jevons and, and, Ma, and Marshall and Menger and so were, were de developing the, the foundations of neoclassical economics, it wasn't possible. Uh, it's really only been possible um, since the, the 60s with computing and feasible with software that now supports that, which is commonplace in engineering. There have been things like packages like Simulink and, and so on mm -hmm. that most engineers would know. Um, uh, and that's easy to adapt that, as I've done uh, for economics with a program that I call Minsky, um, after Hyman Minsky, but it's, it's a software platform, basically system dynamics for economists with, with uh, 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 accounting system attached to it so you can do stock flow monetary modeling properly. And oh. so we could abandon all this stuff. It's just, it's, it's, it's a dead weight holding us down from the 19th century in the 21st. Right. And, and we've mentioned motivations before, but primarily ones, you know, I suppose if we were to accept the reality of your model, mm. it, it, by inference, we would want to regulate the financial system to a greater degree. And, and so that's going to be a source of resistance for taking on. Yeah. This and that's, that's one of the ways in which it is the case that neoclassical economics supports the, power structure and you know if you if you have a, a bunch of economists who arguing the financial sector doesn't need to get regulated they're likely to be ones the financial sector funds rather than characters like me so yeah. they they will select it won't be that the, the people are doing it because the financial sector pays them to do it but they're doing it because their beliefs suit the financial sector and equally uh the same thing can be said about climate change uh if you have a bunch of economists who believe that climate change is trivial then they're likely to get funding from the oil and coal firms and people like me who are saying it's going to be scary, according to what the scientists are telling us. Uh, we're not going to get any funding. So in that sense, uh, they're selected. They already believe this stuff, but they're selected and amplified by yeah. uh, the power structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Um, okay, and so so coming then to solutions, so we talked we talk generally about, like, you want to be 
conscious of this level of private debt in the economy and the amount mm-hmm. of credit generated each year, the, the new loans coming each year. So, uh, yeah, what would a, I suppose, what would, what would a crisis-proof economy look like or what are some of the things that we could do to avoid well, One thing that would happen is, is, is much more relaxed attitude to government debt. And this, so you would have heard of modern monetary theory, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I've okay. heard of it. Yeah, I can't tell okay. you understand now, I'm, it. I'm, I'm like a fellow traveller with modern monetary theory in the sense that I focus on the private financial sector and their public focus on the government. I, my software can integrate the two and it can actually explain part of their logic uh, very easily. But fundamentally, the government is the only institution in a society which owns its own bank. Yeah, that's the starting point. And therefore, and when it goes into debt, it's effectively, it is feasible for a government to go into debt to itself. But that then creates money for the private sector. So the constraints you and I face if we go into debt are not the constraints the government faces if it goes into debt. And of course, there are areas where the government can go totally wrong. and like I've, you know, I've I've had enough of my run-ins with bureaucrats and and uh, stupid rules and so on in the university sector uh, when I was there. Not to want to fund lots and lots of bureaucrats as ways of uh, or have bureaucrats telling capitalists what to do. Um, so I've got you know a lot of sympathy on that front. But the government, when it creates money, does not create debt for the recipient. Whereas the private sector, when it creates money, does create debt for the recipient, and the private sector also benefits from that. The private financial sector, so the financial sector's power. See, you know the old joke: if you owe the bank a hundred dollars, you've got a problem. If you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank has a problem. We've got to you know, <laughs> mod- multiply that by a factor of three these days to bring it up to modern times. But uh, in in that sense, the banking sector profits from creating debt. And so they're going to try to persuade us that we should really borrow more money to buy that house next door. Uh, and you and I competing over a house will actually want to have banks give us more leverage because the one of us that gets the higher leverage is the one that will win the property. Uh, and this is what leads to you know, housing bubbles and busts, which is totally unproductive. So you'd want to regulate them. You'd want to say you've got to lend for productive investment and so on. So this would be... Uh, a, a, a uh, approach to economics which would not be popular with some people in the power structure, and that's a good thing. Right, right. Um, and then, and okay, so it's so it's only for productive use. Um, but what about if I do want to buy a house, right? You know, for the oh, that's that's. I mean, my, my one of my suggestions there was what I call the pill, which was used to be a good joke. It's not anymore. Nobody seems to use the pill these days. Uh, but it stood for property income limited leverage. And the idea was that you would, rather than letting banks pretend that, you know, you've got this fabulous income, you know, the lie alone type phenomenon we've been through, which is utterly irresponsible when you think about it, letting people lie about the amount of money they've got so that they can get a larger debt from a bank. Um, I'd base the maximum amount you can lend against a property to on the income generating capability of that property. In other words, the rental yield. So if you had a property which would rent for, say, uh, £20,000 a year, then I would have a a rule that no more than £200,000 could be lent against it for anybody buying it. And that doesn't matter whether that person is you or me or Rupert Murdoch. Right. Okay. Now, what that would mean is if you and I are competing on the same income to buy the house, the one of which will win that competition, the one that saves more money, not the one that borrows more money, 
Okay. Because I'll have a big uh, deposit to offer the bank. Bigger deposit, yeah. yeah. Um, So that gives you a a dampening feedback. I won't say negative because negative and positive feedback, it's confusing to people who don't know systems engineering. But it gives a dampening effect on the price rises and it, it dampening effect on the impact of that borrowing on the economy as well. So rules like that to, would mean that house prices would be a hell of a lot lower and banks would be making some profit out of, out of lending for housing, but they'd also should be looking for lending for corporations as well, uh, lending to entrepreneurs. And you'd have to change again the rules to enable them to make money out of lending to entrepreneurs because most entrepreneurs are going to go bankrupt. And the bank that funds them will go if they forward with borrowed money that also fail. So you have to have a range of rules that says this is what we want private money creation for. This is where the private sector is better at doing that creation than the government is. Uh, but to do it, we have to make sure they don't fall for the uh, easy attraction, the easy money attraction of causing asset bubbles which is what they have fallen for and whether they can get away with it. Right, right. And, okay, so that, that's in the realm of, of lending. Um, and, and in the realm of sort of the, the investment banking, and, mm. and, and which often, you know, gets, um, you know, cr- criticised, you know, sometimes violently, mm. uh, what, do, do you have any prescriptions there in terms of the whole well, investment yeah, I mean, side? I mean, again, what I'd like to see, I mean, the stock market is defended by people because it raises capital. No, it doesn't. It's generally a place where capital gets destroyed. We have more share buybacks than we have new, new issues. And new issues are a trivial part of the market. You have the IPO phenomenon, of course, but, you know, generally speaking, it's quite, quite a trivial amount of new share issue. I'd rather make it a place which is focused upon generating new share issue and raising new equity capital. And one way to do that, and this is not necessarily the only way, but it is one way, is to give shares a limited number of times that they can be sold on the secondary market. Right. And then after those limited number of times, the shares have a life, lifespan. So you have enough, you leave enough for a bit of price discovery. Maybe the shares can be traded, say, 10 times. Uh, but after that, they then become uh, shares with a date with a date expiry date on them, still earning dividends, still giving you voting rights and so on, but they'll expire after a set number of years. And therefore, the only reason you'd buy them is for the income stream, the annuity stream coming out of yeah. it. So you could still buy shares as an annuity source, but you'd, you'd buy it not because you expect the share to increase massively in, in value over time, but because you're expecting a dividend stream. So. Right. Changes like that would then then mean that the stock market was primarily there to raise new capital, and and that's what we need. We don't need you know secondary trading all the time, uh, let alone the bubbles we get, and then people borrowing against those bubbles. So the same dynamics that we I've seen in the housing market applies with marginal loans, for example, and yeah. uh, and, and and it's the level of leverage that determines the level of stock prices, uh, which is it's insane. That's where yeah. it's irrational exuberance because the structure of the system is irrational. Right. Okay. Um, and it, okay. So this is that's another example of, of of finding ways to dampening dampening asset bubble you know yeah. phenomena. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. And and what about because because you've got you put some charts in this book. Can we avoid another financial crisis? Where you plot out the the current kind of the zombie economies. Right. So these are mm. all economies which have got very high levels of. Um, uh, private debt to, to GDP mm-hmm. ratio, you know, way above the 60% or that we, we talked about that was maybe typical in the fifties and sixties. And they've got, you know, then, and they've got, cr- and they've got, um, you know, pod credit 
you know, new new debt being created each year um, as a significant proportion of the of the GDP. Um, how, how do we like avoid? You know, how do we bring these 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 economies out of the zombie zone whilst avoiding a crisis? I mean, is it applying these these rules in a yeah. sort of stepwise way? Well, the, this this is where the other side. Like I said, I focused on private money creation yeah. and modern monetary theory. Crowd have focused on government money creation. Uh, both governments and banks create money. So banks create money by lending back and they get lending out more than they get back in repayments. And government creates money by spending more than it's take back in taxation. Okay. So they can both do it. And what we've had, because mainstream economics has demonized government debt and trivialized private debt, we've had too much credit money creation and not enough fiat money creation. So that's a long-term mistake. It's a mistake we've been making since the 1960s, 1970s, certainly. So what I just want again to do is, for people yeah. who are not, yeah. you know, conversing the terms here. So yeah. fiat money creation. Just just explain yeah. that in low terms. Okay, fiat money creation is government money creation. Yeah, and the government, the government, and this is what modern monetary theory argues. Which I, I, I must admit, I didn't, and I didn't understand this until I read Stephanie Kelton's The Deficit Myth, and then I thought I better check this in Minsky, and, and then I confirmed her argument in Minsky. So it's, the deficit itself creates money. Yeah. But the government, if you think about what a, what a government deficit fundamentally, government spending is putting money in people's private bank accounts. Taxation is taking money out of people's private bank accounts. So the deficit, the difference between the spending and the taxation is creating money in private bank accounts. Now, I often, if I was challenged about this, I used to say, well, the, does the government create money? I'd say, well, the extent to which the central bank buys the government bonds. But that intact act turns out being an asset swap. And this is where, the software that I've designed called Minsky, which is still, it's got a long way to go before it's finished, I might add, but it's able to handle these issues very well. So if you look at the government actions from the point of view of double entry bookkeeping, the deficit creates money in deposit accounts and creates an identical amount of reserves for the, for the banking sector. So the deficit creates money on one side and creates reserves on the other. Now, reserves don't earn any income for the banks and you can't trade reserves. There's no market for reserves. So when the government, the Treasury, uh, offers bonds, those bonds are purchased by the banks with the reserves that were created by the deficit. And when they've done that, the bonds can be traded. Getting a bit of a drink here. Thanks, honey. Um, yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, the... the um, the, the bonds can be traded and do earn interest. So the actual offer, the offering of the, the selling of the bonds is looks like government debt from the, from the outside because it's, you know, bond is, you think of a, a private bond, that means you're obligated to pay money to the people who've bought the bond over time. Um, but in the case of the treasury bonds being created, they are another form of asset backing the money created in our private bank accounts. And it's an asset which earns uh, interest for the for the banks who've purchased it, <laughs> pardon me, and provides them with the money to buy it. So there's no, oh, and who's going to buy the bonds? Well, the answer is the banks will, because if you run a, a debt, say you run a deficit like an American number, like a, a trillion dollars in a year, you create a trillion dollars of reserves, which are an asset that doesn't earn any income for the banking sector. So you then print a thousand a trillion dollars worth of bonds and say, would you like to buy these bonds? 
And that's saying, would you like to swap a non-income earning, uh, non-tradable asset for an income earning tradable asset? Yes, please. Which is why they're always oversubscribed. Okay. Yeah. And then, then the government's on the hook for the interest on those bonds. But where does the interest come from? Well, I don't know precisely. I don't, I don't, don't follow the actual legalities of what they do. But technically, the government can borrow, the central treasury can borrow from the central bank to pay the interest. So if you have a, a trillion dollars worth a year of bonds being issued, which is a huge level of debt, you know, um, and you're paying 5% on those bonds, which of course have been extremely high yield these days, well, that's 50 billion. So in that sense, the treasury is on the hook to borrow 50 billion from the central bank. And oh dear, it looks like I own the central bank. So let's say you, you charge me interest if you like, and, and then when you return me the profits on the interest, Oh, let's forget about it. Now, most countries around the world, they say, let's forget about it. So when the, when the central bank has treasury bonds, um, or a treasury, oh, sorry, when the treasury borrows from the central bank, it doesn't pay interest on the borrowing. Okay. Right. So all this stuff means that the, what looks like a huge burden, which is the, the government debt, is no burden at all. And in fact, the, the really important thing for the private economy is it creates money you and I use for our ordinary transactions. Right. So we look at this through, you know, our, our natural intuition and think, well, it's a bad thing to be in this mountain of debt. And if if I was yeah. had, had that as an individual, that would not be a healthy position for me to be in. The same yeah. is not true of a government. So we sort of apply this intuition to the government, but we get it wrong because yeah, the government right. is in projection, a different position. Projection. Yeah. And neoclassical economics amplifies that. And they also, because they don't understand banking, and they, they quite seriously do not understand banking at all, um, they will argue in their supply and demand way that a government deficit increases the demand for money, whereas the supply is either fixed or it's, you know, the supply will rise with rising interest rate. Uh, but that's the government competes with the private sector. Now, when you look at it properly and see what's going on, the actual reality is the government deficit adds to the supply of money. So even if you use the demand and supply argument, a deficit is going to increase the supply of money, which using that supply and demand curvy stuff will give you that the deficit was likely to drive interest rates down, not up. Right. So <laughs> this all is all so much in, of this is counterintuitive, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, well, you know, so, so is the fact that the Earth is not the center of the universe. That's <laughs> yes. counterintuitive. Look up, you know, the sun's orbiting every day. I see it go over the top, you know. And if you have a sense of logic from if that's the if that's the depth of your understanding, you're never going to get off planet. Okay. Well, yeah. economics is, as I said, in a Tolmac state of development. Right, right, right. Um, okay, but are there any problems then under this model of of the government having too much, too high a deficit? I mean, mm. Yeah, well, the, the two, I mean, it's one problem the, the um, uh, modern monetary theory will admit is, and I agree with them, of course, is the potential for inflation. Because if you look at the level of government spending as a percentage of GDP historically. Go back to the 1900s, 1910s, and before, it was about 5% of GDP. Okay? Yeah. Uh, now, if, if that's all you're spending, then you could quite seriously run a deficit and not, bar not worry about it. You could actually simply you know, create the, the um, uh, money and not worry about putting too much money into circulation because you're only a small part of the economy. So if you go back in those days, there was no income tax. There were excise yeah. taxes and that sort of thing, you know. Um, but they were generally small and, and limited, certainly nothing like the taxation regime we're used to now. Now, we think ourselves 
our personal attitudes. You're taking money out of my pocket. You know, that's the attitude we have. And I can understand it. You know, taxation, you don't like giving money away. But what it's doing is we've created more than that. We're taking some of it back because if we put in, because government net spending is now at the order of 30% of GDP rather than five, if you're pumping in 30% of GDP worth of money every year, then of course you're going to have, you know, Weimar Republic runaway levels of inflation. Uh, so you tax not because you need the money to finance the spending, but because the spending itself would create too much money, so you're taking it out of circulation. And you, in my opinion, doing it through income tax and stuff like that is a very bad way of doing it because it provokes all the negative reactions that we're quite familiar with towards taxing. We, we should find a better way to take that money out of circulation than income taxing it out. But that's right. one, one, one constraint modern monetary theory will admit. Another constraint that I admit that they don't, and I think they're wrong and I'm right, is that they don't worry about the trade deficit. And right. my picture is that that's something which to some extent reflects the fact that they came out of America, where America uh, can use American dollars to buy anything it likes, whereas Thailand can't use Thai baht to buy anything it likes. Um, and, the, and then they therefore see they, one of their lines is, uh, exports are a cost and imports are a benefit, which I think is loopy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so my point of view, running a trade deficit can mean that ultimately if you do it too much, you've got to borrow on somebody else's currency and that's suicide, which they also agree with. So for God's sake, don't borrow in a currency you don't produce if you're a government. Um, but I, I try to get them more than I think they do. So that's the other one, a trade deficit. Uh, and also, of course, you can fund the wrong things. I mean, again, looking at the space race, I'm a, a great fan of, uh, you know, I've got to admit, I'm a muskite on that front, okay? Like I follow <laughs> Roger Federer in tennis and Elon Musk in, in business and science, um, in engineering. And uh, they're funding the ULA, which looks like a waste of money. Right. And, and the money is, it's really not a case of trying to get a rocket into war, but it's a bit like the permanent wars. You're trying to, you know, provide money to uh, your uh, electorate. Uh, they used to call them the, the um, whoever, whoever was the senator or uh, the congressman for Seattle was called the member for Boeing. Um, and, and so that sort of corporate, uh, government corporate, semi-criminal uh, behaviour is a very bad way to create money and, and very bad things to send money on. So I, I would be looking for, uh, you know, you want money, government, government money spending to do be on things that are practical for the government to do, long-term assets that you don't want people having a short-term profit focus on, sewerage, water, that sort of thing, yeah. uh, rather, than, rather than getting involved in, as they are now in, in, um, in the rocket world, where you know, they, they should just abandon their ULA and hand it all over to uh, leave it all with the private sector, which is finally doing the right thing very successfully in rocketry. So uh, it, it is a case the government can fund the wrong stuff, can... can uh, you know, cause catastrophes that way. Uh, and you have to be aware of that and then say, well, let's be intelligent about where we enable government money creation and where we leave it to the private sector to both fund and to develop technologies. Right. Yeah. And of course, the sort of the people at the more libertarian end would just, yeah, say that we can't. But basically, yeah, we can't trust the government with any, with anything, and yeah, they yeah. they they create all of all of this money to fund foreign wars and other indulgences. Well, that's, that's true. And, you know, I mean, like uh, Julian Assange was. You would have seen some interviews with him recently, replayed from the two thousands, uh, when he was saying, "Look, the idea of Afghanistan is not to win; it's to have a permanent war so you can finance the arms manufacturers." Um, 
and the old military-industrial complex was a large part of that. And, of course, the person who invented the term was General President Eisenhower. Okay? He's literally the person who termed the military-industrial complex in his farewell speech. Right. So, yes, those things are, are truly important issues, and you don't want that sort of thing happening. So you do want to have uh, a politics that enables you to you know, watch out for that. And, of course, the American system is possibly the worst system on the planet for democracy. Um, you know, it, so and, and it, so you, you have all sorts of reasons why that works in the way that libertarians would say it does, because it's been badly designed in the very first instance. Right. But the other thing libertarians would say is like by by borrowing all this money in the present, you're, you're selling out future generations because they've got which to pick up the Which is completely and utterly wrong, which is completely right. and utterly wrong. And that's where the, you, let's do the accounting here, guys. And, and that's why like my Minsky software ha- has the capability to do the accounting and simply ask those questions and say, is that actually what happens? Are you borrowing from future generations? The answer is no, you're enriching current generations. Because you're you create de- all of this new money. You're creating right? money. The if you're running a deficit, yeah, you're creating money for the private sector. If you go back to the 50s and 60s, where deficits were commonplace, um, the, those deficits put money in our hands, which we would then spend on buying goods and services in the private sector. And in that sense, the government empowered the private sector. It didn't. It isn't taking money out. It only does that when it runs a surplus. So, ironically, um, the the way to agree with the libertarians to say is the government shouldn't run a surplus; you run a deficit. Therefore, it's putting more in than it's taking out, and it's leaving it up to you as to how you spend it. Right, right. So that's interesting. So on, on, so you, you disagree with that libertarian uh, perspective in terms of uh, lo- loading up future generations with debt, but you agree mm. with them perhaps on on the on the problem with government spending in the wrong areas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah. and uh, you know, like I've seen plenty of that. Uh, I've even seen governments undermine uh, private initiatives. Uh, you know, and I, and I like way way back when I was in Australia in the eighties. Um, there was an Australian company that invented the world's best telephone called Titel. And, and they couldn't get funding domestically. They finally went under. Uh, but the Australian telecommunications company, government-owned, undercut them by importing a Japanese telephone that they claim was made in Malaysia to take advantage of tariff, tariff advantage to bring the phone more cheaply. Help me, you know? So uh, that sort of behaviour can happen. It is corrupt, it is stupid, and it should be prosecuted. Um, and, but that's not, you know, our, our political system tends to be worse than any libertarian could imagine, and which is what allows those things to happen. Right. And I know you're an economist, not a politician, but what, what are some of the ways in which, well, we've talked about dampening effects. What, what are some of the ways in which we might reform politics to act as a dampening effect on that government spending? A large problem there is that we like, p- p- politics is a popularity contest these days. Okay. Um, you get, and it's also you get the best party money can buy, which is another major problem. So I'd be cutting out the capacity for major corporate, pardon me, corporations to fund. If they wanted to fund democracy, they should put money into a democracy fund. And that should be allocated on the basis of the last year's election results, that sort of thing. So stop the direct funding of political parties and change the system in such a way that you actually encourage genuine experts to be involved because the stupidity I've seen over, over economics has been matched what we're seeing over COVID and it's going to come away in climate change as well. You have fools making decisions about that rather than people understand it. Uh, we, we need to, to start effectively developing a council of elders as used to be the way human societies were ruled 
where those are councils of people who understand the systems that we're part of because it's far too complex for any uh, narcissistic personality disorder sufferer, which most politicians (laughs) I've met are, to understand. Uh, And they get get an aggrandized sense of their own importance and capacity to solve, which they don't have. So we we have to realise just how a complex society needs a management system that understands its own complexity. And and uh, so, yeah, I mean, actually, I'm, it looks like, well, I won't say, but I've, uh, politics is something I might find myself moving into in my older age. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe, yeah, that might be another thing to come back to. That's interesting. <laughs> what about, the, what about the, 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 the sort of the Swiss model of, of pushing much more of the decision making down to the local level, which I must admit I'm definitely attracted to as, as yeah, one of the ways yeah. to prevent, you know, Government well, that's one, like, that's one thing Richard Werner talks about for German banking, for example, why German banking works better than, you know, than, than Western because it tends to be localised and the banker knows the local potentially worthwhile recipients of loans and particularly will fund corporations for working capital in a way you'll never get out of the centralised Anglo-Saxon system. So that sort of thing. Democracy, the same sort of thing. Uh, the trouble is you do get you know, issues which become global, but again, as I say, make, make the, the local globe, the global local and the local global, blah, blah, blah. Um, you, if you're an environmentalist, it tends to be because you have an intricate interest in your own environment as well as the global. So it would be better. I'm not saying it would be, it's not the only solution. I'd want to find a way of getting uh, people with the, the wisdom of complex systems to be involved in making decisions about what you do with those complex systems. Like, for example, with the uh, 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 coronavirus outbreak, I wish a guy called Yanir Bayam had been made the world's global czar on coronavirus because he was the person who cut out uh, the Ebola outbreak in 2014 in Africa and knows how to manage a lockdown, uh, knows how to do it in such a way that you exterminate a disease like that in six to 12 weeks. And instead, we're now looking at, I mean, we've, I think we were lucky to get out of coronavirus in six years. So uh, the, 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 the problem of having people who are more focused on popularity uh, than they are on understanding complex systems is a major reason why we get as stuffed up as we do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're actually advocating in some ways a kind of some kind of counterweight to democratic systems. Yeah, you, well, you need, you need a genuine democratic, so you actually, uh, you know, get uh, local politics, like you're saying, with Switzerland. Uh, you have electoral systems that actually enable people to vote. I mean, the American system is a gerrymandered nightmare. Uh, the fact that the politicians themselves choose the boundaries of the seats, I mean, come on. Um, uh, there are better, so the Australian system and the New Zealand system and, and even one in the, one of the states of Australia called Tasmania uh, there are systems there that where the bureaucrats decide the boundaries. Now, that's what they should do. Politicians yeah. shouldn't be deciding electoral boundaries. Uh, there are limits on how large and how small in population terms an electorate can be. That's, re- that's sensible. You have multiple representation in, uh, in some uh, geographically based seats, um, which means that you, know, you can get a party elected with 15% of the vote rather than needing 50 that sort of thing. So there's a way, there's ways in which we could reform the system to make it reflect more what people wanted. But at the same time, you also need the intelligence of people who understand complex systems and, and have the technology to handle complex systems to say, well, this one is just too complicated. Uh, you know, the, the direct approach is not going to work. Um, what's called ubiquity uh, is, 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 
is the way. Uh, my favourite example is uh, how good a car driver are you? Sorry? you. How, how good a car driver are you? Oh, right. This is 80% of people believe they're above average car drivers. Yeah, they, right? I know. But if you got into a spin around a roundabout, what are you likely yeah. to do? You're likely to turn the wheels in the direction you want to go in, which is going right. to make you skid more. Okay? So you've got to be an expert driver to know you turn into the skid, not against it, that sort of thing. So, right. and, and that's, that's a very simple example of, of a complex system that people are in all the time and don't understand. And if you let the average person make the average decision, they'd cause more accidents. So in, in this system, there are some things which have to be, you know, you, you have to acknowledge this is a complex system. We need people who understand it. We need software that does it. We make decisions based on that integration of knowledge and software. Uh, rather than saying, let's go to have a vote about it, because what people will vote for is turn the wheel uh, in the direction you want to go and we're going to skid off the edge of the road. Right, yeah. So having that deeper insight in the system dynamics that a, a population mm. at large you know, may not you know, happen upon just, just yeah, through a vote, yeah. Mm. And that makes sense. Um, so, okay, so we've talked a little bit about COVID. What, what's, so coming back to the, zomb- the, the, the zombie companies, the, the yeah. zomb- zombie countries right that yeah. um potentially could with any deceleration in in the rate at which banks loan out mm. could all be tipped into a crisis right at any moment yep. so we've got these zombies mm. living dead that are on the potentially perpetually on the brink of a crisis what if anything has the covid you know situation changed in that in that situation Oh, well, it's actually amplified the level of... It's, it's actually, first of all, showing government debt's not a problem because there's been a dramatic increase in government debt uh, yeah. out of COVID. Where did the money come from? It was created by the deficit. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's the and first thing. And we've not had massive, massive inflation. Anything but. Okay, we're likely to have it through supply shocks and, and, and global supply chain problems rather than through the spending itself. So we know that's okay. Uh, but it's increased the level of private debt and this is not private that you've borrowed because you want to go and spend. It's because you haven't got a cash flow for your own commitments. Yeah. So governments had to provide the cash flow. They haven't done it as well as they should have, but at least they've done it to some extent. Otherwise, we would have a t- totally collapsed capitalist system by now because nobody could have paid their rent. Nobody could have paid their uh, mortgage. Uh, more uh, 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 homeowners who have you know second properties couldn't have couldn't have paid the bank. It would have been a cascade of financial crises. So COVID's taught us that government debt's not a problem and private debt is a problem uh, if you haven't got cash flow. So one thing which I've sort of lost one of your questions earlier, so this is coming back to it. We could use government money creation to cancel money created by credit and make it fiat backed instead in what I call a modern debt jubilee. And that's yeah. what I'd want to do for the zombie economies. Actually, even the American economy, I want to, America should be, has a debt level of 160% of GDP right now, which is its private debt level. It should be about 60%. And it's possible to use government money creation capability to give everybody an identical amount of money on the requirement that those who are in debt must pay their debt down or use it as an offset if you can't actually technically manage to pay debt down because of debt covenants and so on. And that reduces the debt burden they have. But for people who don't have debt get a cash injection. And I would require that cash injection to be used to buy a, a, a balanced portfolio of newly issued corporate debt, corporate shares, pardon me, where those corporate shares must be used to pay on corporate debt. 
okay. you put it together, right. you so can everything you can... is is is, uh, is is paying down debt, but it's also rewarding savers. That's right, and it's and it's actually increasing the equity basis of the economy and reducing the debt basis of the economy, and also reversing the incredibly un, unfair impact of quantitative easing, which have made people who had shares the share prices have gone up. Of course, that's made them enormously wealthier. If anybody who hasn't got shares hasn't been made wealthy, so QE has actually made the economy even more unequal than it was because of the financial crisis. And this would reverse that and democratise the ownership of shares. Right. Right. And would it do something? Because what's interesting is I don't see as a thread in here is the sort of rising inequality that we've also seen over this period from the 50s and 60s. So presumably that would have some effect on that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, the rising inequality, and this is one of the things which uh, uh, led to me to a whole approach to economics, uh, is a prediction of my model of, of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. So what got me into e- economics uh, was developing a model of financial instability. And I did that back in 1992, published in 95, as it happens. A bit of a funny story there. Um, but that model... Uh, I took a cyclical economy and I added it was a cyclical economy model without a, without a banking sector, but it had uh, contests over the share of distribution of income causing cycles between wages and profits. And I then added into it, well, during a boom, capitalists borrow more than they invest more than they earn, so they've got to borrow money. And during a slump, they pay it off. So I put that into a model, simply saying capitalists borrowed to finance investment, and it was a model of what you want capitalists to borrow for, it wasn't borrowing to speculate on assets, it was borrowing to build factories, which hired workers and so on. Uh, and what happened out of it, which was quite a surprise, I saw this first in August of 1992, was there was a period of diminishing cycles before a breakdown. So the cycles in the economy got smaller, and then they got larger and you had a crisis in the modelled economy. And that was what happened in the real world after I wrote my model. You had what's called yeah. the Great Moderation. And yeah. neoclassicals like Ben Bernanke took credit for it. It was actually a prediction of my model that this would happen if there was too much rising private debt, which is the exact story we saw. So um, let's see, do we, should, I, should I show that on screen? Yeah, no, please do. Okay, now it's going to look a bit of a nightmare. If you're used to engineering, you won't be quite so scared, but some of your audience might be. So tell me uh, how to go. That's the model. So it's a flow chart. Yeah. So I've actually read it here. Yeah. This is investment causing the level of capital, causing the level of output, causing the level of employment, causing wage change, yeah. determining the wage rate, um, subtract wages and interest from output, you get profit, which determines the rate of investment. And if investment exceeds what you um, uh, are earning, then you've got to borrow money and pay interest on the money. That's the basic right. logic from left to right. Now, when I run the model, uh, and this was not at all built. It wasn't a prediction model. Notice the growth rate cycles are getting smaller. You're getting booms and slumps that are getting smaller over time. And that's what neoclassicals would have called the great moderation. But as yeah. the debt level rises, and I'm actually not showing the debt level directly on that graph. I'll put it in a, in a, a later stage. Um, you start getting increasing cycles. And then finally, you get a breakdown. Now, right. that's... Okay, I didn't realize I didn't actually include the debt ratio there. So if you can handle me, uh, what have I, no, no, have no. I got that? Go <laughs> this is silly. This is, an, this is a model I, I didn't actually realize I hadn't. Uh, let's just actually just do this and copy that and whack. 
let's stop the running, stop the model from running for a moment. And if I divide depth by output, pardon me. Yeah. Mice are always fun to work with when you're doing something live on screen. And I'll just <laughs> graph that. And this will show the debt ratio, which shows what's actually driving the whole system. So if I include the debt ratio inside there and restart the whole thing, then you're getting this tendency for a rising level of private debt as well as the rising level of uh, e economic activity. The cycle initially diminish. that doesn't, yeah, initially it yeah. seems like this is a good thing, right? And you've got a stable economy. But it's not stable, okay? Now, this is the sort of mathematics that is commonplace in in engineering, uh, in in complex systems analysis in general. Neoclassicals don't do this. So they don't do dynamic analysis like this. They force everything into equilibrium. Now, what I'm showing, of course, is far from equilibrium behavior. Mm. So that's the sort of thinking I want to get into economics. And this is why I saw the financial crisis coming, because the symptoms in the real world that the neoclassicals were taking credit for and thinking were good, I was saying, holy moly, that reminds me of my model. This doesn't look healthy. Yeah. And indeed, it wasn't. Yeah. And, and I suppose most, most people would relate to that, right? Since the 2008 crisis for most Western economies, it's, it's felt pretty calm ever since, right? It, but it's been, been stagnant. It hasn't been calm. Yeah. It's been stagnant. And this is the, like the main conclusion of my book is, yes, we can avoid another financial crisis because most economies are going to be in credit stagnation. There'll be a handful yeah. of economies that manage to evade the crisis by continuing their bubbles, which was Australia and Canada in particular, but also to some extent South Korea and China. Um, but China is a very special case because China, the, the, the private banks are owned by the government. So it's a, it's a rather, you know, they've got a capacity to insulate themselves from that from the fact they've got a basically an infinite uh, capacity to create money through the government backing up what the private sector does. But Australia, Canada and so on, um, they were the ones who looked like they avoided the crisis but ended up with high levels of private debt. In countries like America, the UK, Spain and so on, they had a crash and private debt levels fell. Uh, but in the aftermath, they didn't fall enough. And now individuals aren't willing to borrow money because they you know, don't, don't want to run the risk. Banks aren't particularly willing to lend. So you've had credit stagnation. And that's really been the state we've been in, not so much a, a, another crisis, but credit stagnation from not clearing away the excess debt from the previous one, which is what happened back in the Great Depression. Yeah, right. But it's not, it doesn't feel as bad as that. Why doesn't it feel as bad as the Great Depression? Like, why, why are we not suffering in the same way? Partly because the government spending was that much higher this time around, and the, and the government spending acts as a buffer immediately. Government spending was far smaller during the Great Depression and certainly before it, uh, you know, of the order of 10% of GDP. So the change, and there was no you know, taxation effect, there was no income tax, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the switch around that government spending caused this time around didn't occur back on the Great Depression. But the real punchline is something I got quite a shock when I saw it. I had to normalize the data uh, to, to make it f fit with the um, current data. But the level of margin debt in America went from 1% of GDP in 1920 to 13% in 1929. That's what caused the huge stock market bubble. And then it fell back to 1% or half a percent in the 1930s. So people were so massively levered that when the stock market collapsed, they were able to margin calls, they were wiped out. And the private mm. bankruptcy effect of the Great Depression was far greater than the Great Recession. Now, this time around, we've still got huge levels of margin debt, 
but huge means 3% of GDP, not 13. Right, right. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So people didn't get wiped out quite as badly from the recession. But That's we right. still, and also, yeah. yeah we, and also, we inflated the stock market like crazy. The government quantitative easing has kept the stock market flying uh, without it. Now, the stock market was a downside lower than it is today. So yeah. that sort of thing meant that the financial consequences weren't worn with it. We now have this ludicrous level of overvaluation of the stock market, which you can blame on the government. Right, right. So, <laughs> but are people, are the government's just going to be able to keep this, this sort of stagnation going indefinitely, or is there a limit to this? The trouble is they can do it pretty much indefinitely because that capacity to create money that they've got is unlimited. I mean, QE is done by the central bank, and the QE can literally... Where the central bank can literally say, we're going to put $10 trillion in your accounts this year. Do you want to give us $10 trillion worth of bonds, please? Uh, and, and, the, and that's what the private sector will do and can do, uh, particularly you know, that they're buying government, that they can buy all the government bonds off, off, the, uh, off the private banks if they want to. They buy you know, mortgage-backed securities and so on. So the, the government has a capacity to maintain an asset bubble indefinitely, which is what they're doing. Uh, and that's done through the central banks. I think it's one of the greatest mistakes of economic policy ever. But that's what's happened. So they can keep it going, unfortunately. And uh, and and uh, you know the, what we we call it the Greenspan put, but that's what's really kept the markets going for this length of time. Right. And and so that's because yeah, you're quite pessimistic in your book about you know your your uh, prescriptions ever being taken up. But is this part of the reason? Is is because the governments can just keep this going? They can keep on doing it. Yeah. I mean, my. My real worry now is, of course, the, the uh, ecological crisis coming our way. And we don't need financial engineers for that. We need real engineers. We need real companies. We need physical productive capabilities. And they haven't been built, uh, not only in the last you know, 15 years after the financial crisis, but really the last 50 years when we stopped being an engineering society, which you can really date back to the 1970s. Uh, yeah. And, and that's, that means that we are not... We don't have the, the engineering capability we're going to need to address climate change. So you've got a lot more faith in the modelling being done by the climate scientists than you have the economists. Economists goes garbage. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've been a critic of classical economics for 50 years. I've never read nonsense as bad as Nordhaus's and all that time. And what there really is, it's literally assuming that climate is weather. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, I can, and then they, they've, they've done their, they, people think they've used science estimates of uh, damage from climate change and then discounted it back to the current days, which is why you get such small numbers. No, that's not at all what they've done. They've made up their own numbers. So, for example, Nordhaus assumed that 87% of American industry would be unaffected by climate change. Mm. Why? Because it happens in what he calls carefully controlled environments. Now, it was all of manufacturing, all of services, all of government spending and mining. Now, leaving aside open-cut mining, the only thing those things that happen, they happen either beneath the roof or underground. So basically saying if you're not exposed to the weather, you're not exposed to climate change. And then they fitted their models to that assumption that climate change is trivial. Right. And I've just re I'm just re taking apart another paper written recently, I published last month, which said that if we tip all major tipping points in the climate, eight of them, including the, the, the Gulf Stream, as people call it, the Arctic, the Antarctic, uh, Greenland, blah, blah, blah. That'll reduce GDP by 1.4% of what it would have been if there were none, none of those were tripped. I'm sorry. 
that have, that have reduced human civilization to you know, smashing rocks together again. Um, it, it is insane how badly they've underestimated the dangers. And this, again, is part of the delusional basis of mainstream economics. So just as economists were the people who are most surprised by the financial crisis, they're going to be the ones who are most survived by the ecological crisis, but they're responsible for us not being ready for it. Right. But, but, but what you, it sounds like what you do have faith is, is in the climate scientists and their model. Oh, yeah. They're, because there are those yeah. who critique the, mod, the climate modelers and say, well, you guys have got it wrong. Like the predictions that Al Gore made in the inconvenient truth. He's not a climate scientist. This is the danger um, of, of linear thinking in an exponential world. Okay. Uh, you know the old, the, you know the, the the lily in the pond. Do you know that particular analogy? No, no. Okay, if a lily that doubles in size every day, and on the thirty-second day it's going to cover a hundred percent of the pond, on which day does it cover fifty percent? Oh, right, yeah, the thirty-first day. Yeah. The thirty-first. That's right. So you can say, oh, look, they said it's going to double and cover. That day hasn't done it. Hasn't done it. Hasn't. Look how small that thing. Oh, fuck. Okay. Uh, so if you think linearly about it, you're going to get completely wrong. And humanity does not understand exponential behavior. And this is, again, one of those cases where you really need experts in there uh, rather than amateurs. Now, some, Gore is an amateur, but he's listening to the experts. And he may have got things. He's try, trying to scare us, saying, if we don't do it by then, it's going to be all the shit's going to hit the fan. Well, we've got to the stage where the shit is approaching the fan. And the, the reason we've got there is because of trivialisers of the climate damage. And fundamentally, economists have been the major trivialisers. The scientists largely have been fairly accurate. Their models of what's going to happen out of carbon dioxide rise in terms of temperature levels, uh, their models of storm frequency, uh, of fire increase, et cetera, et cetera, have been pretty accurate. We've just been approaching the point where they become catastrophic. and saying it hasn't happened yet is a great way to make sure it becomes catastrophic when it does. And I think we've actually got to that point. It'll take something catastrophic before people really realise, oh, God, we should have listened to them 50 years ago when this thing was, you know, the lily was well, a couple of uh, cells. Now it covers the pond. We've got to the stage where we're on the 31st day. Right. Well, that's interesting, and I've got a lot of respect for that view because I, you know, I haven't had time to look at the modelling, but I, mm. I certainly hear the other side of it. Oh, well, this is just a way to scare humanity into giving governments more resources so they can tax us more and and, and spend on more, and then give it to their, their their crony capitalists to spend on these, you know, these climate change schemes that are ultimately pointless. Oh, but you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, yep. It's such nonsense. I mean, having been an academic, I know how bad academic funding is, how tough it is to get. And, and the whole idea there's been a conspiracy by climate scientists because they're getting money out of this is just a total joke. And, and anybody who actually does this research, do you think it's fun spending six months in Antarctica? You know, mm. it, it's stimulating, okay, fun, no bloody way. Um, so the whole idea that this is being a conspiracy by climate scientists is just nonsense. Uh, but it's well, a I sort of it nonsense to get peddled. Well, I think it was more by those who, who want, who, you know, not, not just climate scientists, but... Um, you know the uh, the the watermelon right trope right that you know these are green on the outside red on the inside it's just a way to scare the population <laughs> into giving governments more control. That's unfortunately how we've politicised scientific issues. And uh, yes, okay, a lot of there are you know, I know plenty of watermelons, okay, um, and yes, they are treating it that way. But they might also be right about the science, and you're wrong. Yeah. And in that case, 
what's going to come out of it, you're going to get the watermelon effect because when this hits, the market will be nowhere near ready for the changes that are required. And therefore, it will take enormous amounts of government spending. Now, if we'd actually done what they were talking about 30 and 40 years earlier, such as when limits to growth came out in 1972, if we'd actually followed the you know, watermelons of limits to growth, who in fact were a bunch of you know, first-class engineers from MIT, if we'd followed their lead, then we could have done it without destroying capitalism. But now, given how we've delayed it for 50 years, when the crisis hits, it'll be a, the, the least level of mobilisation one need is a, war, is, a, is, a, is a world war level of mobilisation. And we didn't fight the Germans with private, with the, you know, with the stock market dropping tickets on Germany. Okay. The government, the, the private firms existed and did what the government paid them to do. Uh, but it was a government run thing and, and government control and rationing was everywhere. And so ironically, by treating it as a left wing issue, they've made it into one because it'll only be a government military scale, world war scale response that is going to give us any chance of limiting the damage such that we can actually maintain something resembling human civilization after it. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that, that would make sense if we get the catastrophe that obviously, as far as you're concerned, and when you look at the data, that's what's going to, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. things like you know, what we're seeing right now, I mean, absolutely bizarre wildfires in America, floods in America, floods in Europe, washing away a town. Uh, that scale of, of impact from global warming, uh, let alone biodiversity loss and so on, uh, are going to make our production systems incredibly fragile. And the, the scale of storms we can expect, uh, where you know each each increase, well, each one degree increases by between five and seven. I've seen measurements from five percent to seven percent increase in moisture content in the air. Uh, and that, you know, you, when you get to three and four degrees. Uh, you get a you know thirty forty percent increase in moisture in the air. It comes down not like you know English drizzle. It comes down like those catastrophic downfalls, and then only once you know, again the, the, this the fact that humans react to crises after uh, we we never stop a crisis. We react afterwards. Uh, it's going to take something on that scale of you know ten a hundred times as bad as we saw in Germany before people realise Jesus, this is serious. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. That is that is human nature, isn't it? I had a I had a mm. crash at an intersection near my place, and I was you know it was a big smash. And we wrote each other's cars off. But I spoke to the policeman mm. afterwards, and they said, uh, "I said, you know, why don't we put some streetlights out?" And he said, "Oh, that nothing will happen until you get more deaths. There's not been enough deaths here." Um, yeah, that's how that, it goes. That, yeah. yeah, that's how it goes. Mm. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, okay, well, fascinating. My God, <laughs> Steve, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 you know, I've, I've absolutely loved. This conversation, um, you know, so much of what you, you you say makes sense in terms of this need for us to um, see the world in all its realism and all its complexity um, makes absolute sense. You know, the warnings you're giving about the climate t- change, um, I, you know, I appreciate. Yeah, just just thank you. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, yeah, it's coping with it's a, a rather difficult. I'm, you know, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm for, for pretty damn certain I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we did mention at the start, but uh, you have a paid, that's the, the main way you fund your work, as I know, is, is through yeah. Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash, slash Prof Steve, Steve Keen. Steve, so make sure you. Uh, yeah, Prof Steve Keen. That's it, uh, all one word. Contribute. 
Yeah, and most of my posts there are free. I mean, I like people supporting me, obviously, but most of the work there is freely available. And I've got a new book coming out uh, at the end of the month called The New Economics, A Manifesto. Right. And that's saying what economics should be, as well as uh, covering some of the many catastrophes in mainstream economics that have blinded us for so long. Yeah. Fantastic. And it seems to me like that's one of the, one of the things, because one of the questions that comes in, well, what can we do, right? We've already talked about how easy it is for, mm. for, for these politicians to keep um, these zombie economies going potentially indefinitely. Well, one of the things it seems to me we can do is educate ourselves on, on these alternative economic viewpoints, um, starting some of the, the, the politics um, that would help bring this, these economics viewpoints into, into reality. Seems like some of, the, some of the things that we can be doing as individuals. Yeah, it's feasible. We, we, the, the best thing we can do, well, one of the best things we do is, de, is, is detoxify our brains from neoclassical economics. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. Fantastic. Um, okay, thanks. And, for, and, yeah. and for, the, for, for this book, you know, this is the, the one that I read. Obviously, you've got many. Can we avoid another financial crisis? This is one I read recently. I mean, it's a, it's a relatively short short book. It, it, does, it does use a lot of economic terminology but um i found myself on investopedia a couple of times just looking up a few terms <laughs> but it but it but generally speaking it's it's, it's a good read uh you know it's, it's full of anecdotes and the, and the graphs make it visual so you know i'd recommend this one um and if you're already well versed in economics then this is i'm sure going to be a pretty easy read for people i'll so, annoy yeah. the shit out of most economists <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, they, 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 if, yeah. you're, if you're an engineer you'll understand it if you're an economist yeah. it'll It'll scramble your mind, but your mind deserves to be scrambled if you're an economist. <laughs> yeah. Detoxified now. Great, <laughs> yeah. uh, hey, hey, Richard. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, we'll put all the links, uh, you know, to the books, to the Patreon, to the site, um, to the comic. Uh, yeah, we'll put, it, we'll put it all up. Thank you. That's great. Okay, many right. thanks, Richard. Thank you. Okay. Enjoy your review. Okay. Thanks. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by. First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.